I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. Hello, John. How are you today? I am good. I'm doing all right. How are you? You know what? I'm hanging in there okay. We're kind of towards the tail end of summer. I'm back in Texas. And uh, yeah, it's hot. So welcome to the tail end of summer, I guess. (laughs) Yep, it is hot here too. But fortunately, we are inside with air conditioning and talking about musicals. That is right. And today we are talking about Tick, Tick, Boom with music, lyrics, and book by Jonathan Larson. Tick, Tick, Boom premiered off-Broadway at the Jane Street Theater on May 23rd of 2001. Tick, Tick, Boom was directed by Scott Schwartz with choreography by Christopher Gatelli. The original cast included Raul Esparza as John, Jerry Dixon as Michael and others, and Amy Spanger as Susan and others. Tick, Tick, Boom was never on Broadway, so it was not eligible for any Tony consideration. However, it was nominated for seven Drama Desk Awards, but did not win any. Over a persistent ticking sound, John introduces himself. The sound you are hearing is not a technical problem. It is not a musical cue. It is not a joke. It is the sound of one man's mounting anxiety. I am that man. John is an aspiring music theater composer who worries about his aging and lack of achievement as he nears his 30th birthday. Michael, John's childhood friend, is a former actor who gave up acting to pursue a more lucrative career as a research executive. Susan, John's girlfriend, is a dancer who teaches ballet to wealthy and untalented children. Susan and John discuss the upcoming 30th birthday party. She pressures him to play happy birthday to you, to himself on the piano at the party, but he is hesitant. Michael wants to schedule a job interview for John with Michael's firm. Again, John is hesitant, but agrees to think it over. Later, on the roof of his apartment building, John reveals that he is also nervous about an upcoming workshop of his newest musical, Superbia. Susan comes to join him. He comments on her dress and how beautiful it makes her look. The next morning, John wakes up early. Susan asks him about the possibility of leaving New York. Susan wants to raise a family and does not see that fitting in with John's starving artist mentality. John is torn between following his dream of composing and opting for security and family in a different career. John's reply is cut short. He needs to report to his day job as a waiter in a Soho diner. After work, Michael picks John up in his brand new BMW to show John his new apartment. Michael dreams of a life of luxury and pressures John further to consider changing his career path. Frustrated, John finally agrees to accompany Michael to work the next day. Back at home, John phones his parents and then his agent. He plans to spend the remainder of the evening composing, but he is interrupted by a call from Susan, who wants to see him. They argue, albeit in a passive and psychological manner that scarcely seems like an argument at all. On Monday morning, John walks to Michael's office for his visit. 
On the way, John thinks back to a workshop in which his work was reviewed by a composer so legendary his name may not be uttered aloud. He also worries about his place on Broadway, but has little time to develop this train of thought before he arrives at Michael's firm. The brainstorming session involves naming a cooking fat substitute through a convoluted idea generating process. John sees the futility of the process and his unwillingness to cooperate gets him removed from the meeting. Later, as John drives Michael to the airport for a business trip, they argue about the meeting. Michael tells John that the life Susan wants doesn't sound bad and that he wishes his job could give him the chance to settle down. After dropping Michael off, John goes to a rehearsal for Superbia, but not before stopping to grab some Twinkies. At the market, he spies Caressa Johnson, one of his actors for Superbia. She reveals a similar weakness for Twinkies, and this leads to a friendship between the two. After the rehearsal, Susan sees John and Caressa walking together and becomes jealous. She informs John that she's gotten a job in Northampton, Massachusetts, which may be permanent. John and Susan argue about the state of their relationship. In a turnaround from their earlier argument, John begs Susan to stay and be with him. Despite this, she leaves for home, and John thinks about what could have brought this argument on. The next morning, John arrives early at the theater for the workshop of Superbia. Although initially the theater is empty, soon it is filled with very important people, John's family and friends, as well as Broadway producers and artists, including John's idol. Carissa steals the show with her performance of Come to Your Senses. The workshop is a success and John gets many congratulations, but there are no offers to produce Superbia on or off Broadway. John is no closer to being a professional composer, and so, in his eyes, the workshop has been a failure. After the workshop, John visits Michael and tells him that he is through with music. For the first time, though, Michael tries to persuade him to stick with it. Michael says that while he enjoys how he makes a lot more money now than he did as a starving artist, he finds the job itself to be emotionally banal and unrewarding. The two argue, and John yells at Michael for not understanding fear or insecurity. Michael responds by telling John that he understands all too well as he is HIV positive. Shocked at this news, John leaves quickly. Distressed and alone, John wanders through Central Park until he finds himself at the closed Delacorte Theater near Belvedere Castle. He finds an old rehearsal piano and begins to play. John ponders on whether the amount of sacrifice required for his career in music is worth it, and whether those telling him to have it all, play the game, are right. Ultimately, he realizes that he will only be happy as a composer, no matter what hardships that may bring. The next morning is John's 30th birthday. He sees Susan, who is getting ready to leave. She gives him his birthday gift a thousand sheets of blank manuscript paper. They agree to write to each other and she leaves. Michael gives John a birthday gift of belts. The phone rings and the caller is Stephen Sondheim. Sondheim leaves John his contact information so that they can meet and discuss superbia. John realizes that he is surrounded by friends and that his talents are finally being recognized. He says, the tick-tick booms are softer now. I can barely hear them, 
And I think if I play loud enough, I can drown them out completely. John sits down at his piano to play Happy Birthday. A song that at the time of this coming out would have still been protected by copyright laws. So they would have had to pay to be able to use that song. Which just is a perfect example of just how messed up our copyright laws just kind of are. It's free now, though. We could sing it and it would be okay. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it would be unokay for a whole bunch of different reasons, but we wouldn't get sued. And that's really, you know, that's the line for acceptability now, isn't it? Like, will I get sued for doing this? No, it's okay. And it's funny you bring this up because Tick, Tick, Boom is actually chock full of these moments where Larson made it a point to include little allusions and quotes or in the case of one song basically I mean rip off is too strong a term perform a direct homage from another show would probably be more appropriate um towards the end of the first half of the show where John goes to work um, at his at a, a Soho cafe, there's a song called Sunday, which is about the various types of customers he encounters about their daily lives and how they stop in for Sunday brunch that just basically... John, don't flirt around with it. It copies Sunday from Sunday in the park with George. Rips off the two. It it is Sunday. It is Sunday. It is literally Sunday from Sunday in the park with George. I mean, I I need to now go to the score because it kind of it makes me wonder. Um, and maybe we'll update this someday. But does I wonder if he even changes the key? Like maybe, probably. And I don't know. It's, it's definitely meant as an homage. Uh, Jonathan Larson was very upfront in interviews and articles and and basically everything that Stephen Sondheim was his idol, was his inspiration, and that he took this Sondheim tune and then incorporated it into his own first work makes a lot of sense. I get it. Um, but this is a direct quotation. Yeah, I mean, musically, 100%. The lyrics are totally different, and the lyrics are actually p- pretty clever. I, I th- That was one of the moments of this show that I particularly enjoyed in listening to it. Um, but it doesn't even stop there. Um, in, a, in a later song, Johnny Can't Decide, there is um, a point where all three characters that are singing start referring to themselves in third person, which again is an illusion from Sunday in the Park with George in um, one of the songs uh, titled Lesson Number Eight, where the the characters start referring to themselves in third person, then kind of switches over to tick tick boom, and it's the same deal. They're they're arguing and they're singing and they're talking, and they're referring all of all of themselves that not as me myself I, but John Michael and Susan. We can go on and more and more in the song Why. There are references to West Side Story, like where John directly references West Side Story in talking about it. But then there's also the the, the tritone leap, the body that you hear in Maria in West Side Story that is directly quoted. Um, there's also a quote from Let's Go Fly a Kite in from Mary Poppins. 
um, which I will fully admit I have a little bit of a hard time hearing. Uh, he quotes uh, the Tonight Quintet from West Side Story. He quotes Cool from West Side Story. You brought up a really good point when we were talking about this. At which point does it become a shift from homage and loving quotation to too much? Yeah, I mean, so for me, like I said, the Sunday reference, I thought that was funny. I thought that was fun. As the show keeps going and that that musical reference occurs uh, earlier in the show, as the show progresses and we get more and more of those, I, I began to view it less of something that was clever and more as something that was kind of a gimmick. And I get it. Because it's a show about someone who composes musicals. So they're going to be in this musical world and all of these things are on their mind. So like, it makes sense that musicals would seep into the context and the music of the show about this person's life. But it came very close. I'm not going to say that it crossed the line, but it came very close to crossing the line for me into something that moved away from clever and became... Cheap is too harsh a word, but not clever. Oh, over the top, maybe? Maybe, but it's not, because it's not like, you know, it's not uh, something rotten. It's not just like, let me smash a bunch of direct musical quotes in your face for the sake of the joke. It's not that. And I'm not saying that's bad. That was like the whole premise of something rotten, which is funny. But it it's just... It's so pertinent that you wonder what the actual Jonathan Larson material is, as opposed to just his like arrangements of other things. And that's a fair point. And something you and I were talking about while we were prepping for this, um, the only other Jonathan Larson mainstream music we have is Rent. Um, for those who are not in the know, Tick, Tick, Boom was originally written as a rock monologue, and we'll get into that in a couple of minutes, in the early 1990s. Uh, he actually started writing it in 1992. Um, Rent premiered in 1996 or 1997. In the lead up to Rent, um, Jonathan Larson passed away. So we literally only have these two moments of his his music to kind of really judge it. And I, I originally put forth this concept that maybe this was in his mind, his hook, um, because we see the same thing in Rent, albeit in a less uh, present manner. There are, there are the, the Musetta's Waltz references. There are other quotes from uh, the, the Puccini opera Bohème in Rent, which makes sense because it is it's a retelling of uh, the Bohème story, but I'm, you know, now I'm starting to second guess myself and I'm wondering if it's not so much a hook in his mind, but in, you were just talking about, you know, at what point does it stop becoming referential to the story and just become too much here? I feel like in Tick, Tick, Boom, we get to that line of almost it being too much. Whereas in Rent, it was always story-driven. It was always the point of the plot. It was always the point of the idea that these quotes could could occur. Right, and that makes sense. You go from the first show, Tick, Tick, Boom, where maybe it's too much, 
he refines it in rent and you know we can hope we can think that if he had had the opportunity to write a third show it would have been even more refined or perhaps not even something that he was playing around with anymore absolutely and it just It's fascinating from from the music nerd in me to kind of see this refinement as we go on. Unfortunately, we have so little to draw from. So that conclusion will never be able to. It's always going to be a game of what if. But that idea of seeing, you know, kind of the proto into the professional into, you know, what could have happened next. And a lot of, I mean, a lot of Tick, Tick, Boom for me is actually kind of pointing towards a show that for me personally, was a little bit ahead of its time. Like I mentioned, it was originally, he started writing in 1992. It went through the workshop process. And interestingly enough, it was the workshop process for Tick, Tick, Boom that brought in the idea of uh, rent because young, uh, young producer Jeffrey Sellers actually saw the workshop of Tick, Tick, Boom Um, when it was still in its one-man show format, fell in love with it, fell in love with Jonathan Larson, and was actually one of the producers who ended up bringing Rent to the stage. But you also have to remember, 1992, we're at the very end of the the, the quote-unquote mega-musical era of Broadway, where you had shows like Phantom and Les Mis and Cats and Miss Saigon and so on and so forth. These massive, massive shows that are, they're, they're meant for spectacle. They're meant for just wowing the audience in their seats. And while those still exist now, like today, we're getting more and more of these smaller Self, self-referential to a degree, but this intimate show where it's more about the character, where it's more about the idea of the person and the person finding themselves and coming into the age of discovery and so on and so forth and yada, yada, yada. You've got things like Dear Evan Hansen, you've got the band's visit, you know, and, and we could just go on and on. That's what this show is to me. It was just written 15 years too early. And I, I don't know if, if Rent had not been the success it was, I don't know what we would be sitting here talking about Tick, Tick, Boom. Um, I am, I am realistic enough to understand that this shows ongoing popularity, at least amongst music theater practitioners, is because it is from the same author who wrote Rent. But for me, I mean, the music in this show, it just fits perfectly into our modern aesthetic. It just was way too early. I think that's fair. There are some issues that I have with the story in that, especially now, it's a story we've just heard so many times. And personally, I'm just a little tired of hearing that story and seeing that story. Um, And there are some curious aspects to it that are you know, very of their time and of their period, but it definitely doesn't fit in with that mega musical aesthetic in which it was written. Yeah. And I mean, we were talking about it before the story does come across as a little sanitized a little bit. It, it fits the concept of the classical coming of age story that is so prevalent in every aspect of media everywhere. 
in radio, in TV, in film, in musicals, in books. It just, it fits a little bit too nicely. And, you know, without getting too far into the one, what if, you know, it, it makes you wonder. So we talked about originally, this was a one man show and Larson actually labeled it a rock monologue, which is like awesome. I like, I love that term. Um, And uh, so this went through uh, the, the show went through the workshop process and all of that as a rock monologue. Um, As I mentioned earlier, Jeffrey Sellers, who was just starting out on Broadway at that time, saw this, fell in love with the show, but more importantly, fell in love with Jonathan Larson, followed him, kept up with him, and that's eventually how we had Rent. Rent premieres, Jonathan Larson passes away before that happens, and going into the early 2000s, this show is then revamped. and the original producer of the one man, the, the rock monologue, brings in David Auburn, who some of you may recognize as the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright of the of Proof, um, which is, you know, an amazing play, became an amazing movie. Um, so, you know, someone who knew what they were doing. And it was actually David Auburn who helped streamline the show, but also expanded it from a rock monologue into the three-person show that Tick, Tick, Boom is now. We don't, at least in our searching, we were not able to find anything from this show when it was a one-person show, when it was the rock monologue. Um, And so as much as I say we don't want to delve into it, now we get to delve into what if. So what is, I mean, what does this show look like as a one-man show? I, I have such a hard time, like, envisioning it. I agree. I, you know, it's definitely hard to imagine how the conflicts that seem to be so central to Tick, Tick, Boom as it exists now, you know, between John and Susan and between John and Michael, how those conflicts exist with just one person. That being said, those conflicts are kind of the thing that I hate the most about tick tick boom as it exists now like it's a lot of people who are just kind of complaining about their life based on situations that they've put themselves in and I just have very little patience for that as a person and I realize that's my personal opinion and not really a valid artistic critique but if those were removed and it was maybe just an examination of the self-struggle that I imagine would be more prevalent in a one-person show I think that might be more compelling to me personally that's fair um again playing what if does this work in our current age of broadway as a one-person show which i guess is even the wrong question to ask i guess the larger question would be can you even do one-person shows on broadway anymore uh i mean maybe if we had jonathan larson to be that one person Potentially, yes. But I, I don't think we get one-person shows on Broadway unless you're someone like a Bruce Springsteen. And then those shows aren't so much shows as just kind of sad concerts with that, lines. And I, I, I will take this. I, this is the hill I will die on. As we, <laughs> as we kind of somewhat emerge from 
the pandemic, whether we're emerging from a phase of it or there's a light at the end of the tunnel, I don't know. It, we're in the middle of it. So it's hard to say the end when you're still like you, you, you have that vision issue. Um, it makes me sad that the, the, the grand triumphant return of Broadway to New York after the pandemic was Bruce Springsteen on Broadway. Like, come on, guys. Like, really? Really? That's all I can say. Really? Yeah, I mean, you need a lot less to do a one-person show. Take, you know, you don't have to worry about social distancing the cast. Crew requirements are probably pretty small. Yeah, okay. Logically, I know what you're saying. (laughs) My heart, however, is like, really? Anyway, before we get too far off track, is there anything else you would like to talk about with regards to Tick, Tick, Boom? Well, I think the last thing we wanted to to leave everyone with is the the note that there's going to be a, a movie adaptation of this coming out soon. Which they are actually expanding. Um, so it is it will be coming out this fall on Netflix. Um, they have not paid us for it. So even though this sounds like a commercial, it really isn't. Um, adapted by Lin-Manuel Miranda of Hamilton and In the Heights fame, um, and probably all of y'all's just cultural zeitgeist at this point, because he has become omnipresent at this point. Um, And they are actually expanding it a bit. They are doing a full cast, um, including uh, a handful of people, um, they've even there will got, be people in the cast. There will be people in the cast. Um, oh Bradley Whitford will be playing Stephen Sondheim. Um, Beth Malone will be playing herself. Um, and it's it's actually got a, a fairly well known cast. And I mean, I will fully admit, I I am very morbidly curious to see Andrew Garfield as Jonathan Larson. Like, I didn't know he could sing. Like, good for him. I guess we'll find out if it can. Fair enough. So if you are curious to learn more about Tick, Tick, Boom, you can wait for that uh, movie to come out and just watch that version. Uh, There's also a cast album uh, on Spotify of the 2001 uh, adaptation of this show that I am reluctant to recommend because I don't care for the guy playing John but it's there if you're curious. And I say, what the heck? Because there are no other recordings. (laughs) Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.